It's good to be with you. I developed a little cough this afternoon, so hopefully I, I can power through this again. But uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 tonight. I want to look at something really cool. I, well, I think it's cool. Um, but let me ask you a question uh, right off the bat. And that is, if you were forced, you know, I think they do these in those like personality quizzes that are going around now. If you were like forced to describe yourself in so many words, what would that word be? Or if it, you know, if it was a sentence, you might think of a sentence, or if it was a couple words, what would that word be? Perhaps even one word. Would it be, you know, uh, I'm athletic, or I'm uh, smart, or I'm uh, intelligent, I'm thoughtful, I'm discerning, I'm whatever, you fill in the blank. I'm sure perhaps there's a word that pops into your mind if you have done any sort of self-reflection, you kind of know yourself. Um, not many of us are choosing words like weak or puny or wimpy or something like that. We choose strong words, right? We choose words that give off a sense of ability or strength or uh, uh, the fact that we are capable or competent. But I would like to uh, look at some verses in Matthew 11 because I think uh, the way Jesus describes himself is not only very interesting and very kind of unexpected, but I also think it's how we should be described ourselves. The way that Jesus uh, describes his whole personality, his whole character, is the way the gospel forms us into being self-described, I think. Look at verse 28. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, just 28 through 30. He says, Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you notice how he describes himself? I am meek and lowly in heart. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen that in someone's social media profile. Um, most often those are filled with accolades or things that they want to promote themselves with. Uh, this self-description of Jesus is unlike anything you will hear today. And that's because I don't remember the last time I've ever used the word meek or meekness in a sentence. Um, I don't know about you. It's just a word that has kind of fallen off the map. Uh, it's not used a lot and hasn't been for a long time. It's not a common word. And I think that's because our society, our culture is kind of built on this idea of strength and living strong and being all that you can be. And, and that reality in a, in a culture, in a world that's built upon those foundations, someone who is meek doesn't fit in. Because a meek person, if you just look at the definition of meek or meekness, it, this is how it's described or defined. It's someone who is quiet, gentle, easily imposed upon, and submissive. So in a world that's saying that we can be everything we can be, uh, we don't want to be described as someone who is easily imposed upon or gentle. Excuse me. Uh, no one would sign up for that. No one would describe themselves this way. This just doesn't fit in with the way our culture is formed. And therefore, uh, meek people are often usually regarded as weak people. Meekness is weakness. Meekness is something to be avoided. It's something that should be shunned. It should be not ever describing you, especially if you are someone who is assertive. Maybe that was the word you described yourself as. We don't find meekness 
as like a common trait amongst you know, Fortune 500 CEOs or New York Times bestsellers or people who are at the top of the societal food chain, uh, you don't find them describing themselves as meek. These are the type A'ers. These are the people that are strong. Meek people are the ones who are forgotten. They're the ones who are left in the dust of those who are successful. And I think it's true for Christians too. We don't want to describe ourselves as meek. We don't want to appear as if we're doormats. Often we think that way, right? We think that meek people are doormat people. They're people who are walked upon. And I think that's often why when Paul is in Galatians 5, right, he's giving the fruits of the spirit, meekness, the second to last of the fruit. I think it's often the one that's, you know, kind of forgotten. It falls to the wayside. We don't remember meekness there. We remember all the other ones that are listed, but we, don't for, we forget about that one. Um, but I would like to say to you, and really quickly, I hope to prove to you that I think meekness, properly understood, is the posture of a Christian. It's the posture of one uh, to whom the gospel has come and infused uh, Christ's spirit upon them. And in fact, I think meekness itself is built upon the facts of the redemption and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those facts are at the heart of what we believe. So therefore, I think meekness is properly understood the, the correct posture of a Christian. So really quickly, I'm going to bring you to a couple different passages. Um, you can kind of show you some different images to show uh, how meekness uh, is, is, is just that, the posture of a Christian. So first of all, t flip with me to Numbers chapter 12. Here I think, and we're going to go to another passage too. You can turn ahead if you want. It's Daniel 3. Numbers 12 first though. Um, here I think we see meekness pictured for us. Meekness pictured. This is a common sketch of meekness. I think, I believe I'm correct on this, that it's the first time this word has appeared in the Bible. Numbers 12, verse 1, and it says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So, uh, it, Really quickly, it, Moses has married this woman. It's not really known who she is because she remains unnamed. Um, but also, it's not really known why uh, Miriam and Aaron would sort of denounce this marriage. They, it's not really known uh, what they were, uh, what their goal was, what their intentions were by denouncing this marriage. It could have either been for a political reason or a racial reason or whatever. Regardless, uh, I think what we're made to see is in the verses that follow because we're made to see Moses' response, or I should say lack of response, because look at verse two. And they said, this is Miriam and, and Miriam and Aaron speaking, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, there's our word, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spoke, spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. So uh, they denounced this marriage, but notice, uh, as we're going to read down through verse 9. Notice who never speaks. Moses never comes out and tries to defend himself. He never comes out and tries to uh, try and clear his name in this denouncing of his, uh, his new bride. He just lets God speak for him. Look, verse 4 again. 
And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three into the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall be behold, shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So he calls out all three of them. I like how it says the Lord came down. He physically uh, visits them. And he speaks directly at Aaron and Miriam and reprimands them uh, quite harshly. As it says in verse 9, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them for speaking against the Lord's servant. But through it all, Moses is silent. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't try and uh, attack them back. They've attacked him, and he doesn't try and retaliate against them with some other demeaning thing to say against them. He's silent. He lets God himself be his vindication. He doesn't try and win his own thing. He doesn't try and say his own thing. He lets God speak for him. That's something that's very important, I think. And I think that's why God honors Moses' meekness in this story. And he comes to the defense of his servant. God himself defends his people. That's, I think, a really good picture of meekness. But flip to that other passage, Daniel 3. You are probably familiar with this story, Daniel 3, because I think here is another really, really vivid picture of meekness uh, pictured for us. Daniel 3 is, of course, I like to call them the Hebrew 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They've been taken captive into a foreign nation called Babylon, and they've been summoned to bow and worship to the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And of course, uh, they are threatened with death if they don't do so. They are given a second chance, and yet they still resist this tyrant's uh, demand on them, and they don't bow down. And I love their response. Look at verse 16, because this is a conviction to me. The meekness that's on display, but also the courage because you see, here in this, pat, in this picture, I think, we, we see what meekness really is. It's courage. Look at the courage on these three young men's hearts. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. That basically means we don't have to answer to you. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, whoo, those are good words. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. <laughs> they are faced with the uh, impending threat of being burned to a crisp in a furnace, which later, I think, we... 
we read of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar turns up the heat seven times hotter than has ever been turned up before. And yet here they, they boldly declare, they courageously declare that we don't have to answer to you. We don't have to defend ourselves in this matter. We don't have to answer to you, Nebuchadnezzar, because you aren't our king. God alone is our king. You see the courageous meekness that's on display here? They don't have to answer to this king. They have to answer to God. And therefore, they are given all types of courage in the face of certain death to be a faithfully meek uh, young man. And that's what I think meekness is. It never succumbs to compromising uh, your stance or it never succumbs to trying to defend yourself and be your own vindication as if your words can clear your name. These young men, uh, Moses as well in Numbers, they, they stood in confidence of what God would say on their behalf, not what they would say, not what they would do, even if it meant they lost everything. I love that, that phrase. If it be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to, he can. He's so powerful, you don't even know the half of it. He can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, but if not, we still won't serve you. We still won't bow to you. We still won't compromise. I love that. He can, and even if he doesn't, we are still faithful. And that's why I think it's so hard for us to accept this idea of meekness because meekness means being okay with losing. It means being okay with losing. And that's where we get to uh, uh, our second lesson. So we had meekness picture. Turn with me to Matthew 26. And here we see meekness portrayed for us. Meekness portrayed. Matthew 26, verse 52 This, um, of course, is the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane. Before we get there, we just said that meekness was being okay with losing. And that is something that is kind of um, an affront to us. We, we have a society, as we said at the beginning, that's built upon strength, that's built upon uh, living strong and all those types of things. And, and therefore, losing is kind of perceived as something that's a negative. It's something that's perceived as something that we should avoid. And even in Jesus' day, this idea that we would be uh, the winners and we would overcome and we would achieve all these things was the common assumption when it came to the Messiah, right? That was the common assumption when Jesus was claiming that he was the Messiah. Much of his following believed that he was going to be the guy that was going to go to the Roman uh, Empire and, and perform this like coup d'etat and take it over and bring Israel back to prominence, he was going to overthrow it by force. He was going to attack Rome with this mighty army. And this was going to be the one that would bring Israel back to the zenith of its power, so to speak. And so when Jesus, that's why you have to see when Jesus dies, a lot of the hopes of a lot of people died too. Because they had put their hope in this idea that Jesus was the Messiah that was going to clear them from Roman dominance. And yet he didn't do that. It looked a lot different, and that's because they misunderstood what Jesus' message was. 
And that's why over and over again, Jesus teaches that the the way his kingdom is established isn't by some sort of uh, conquering force. It's actually ushered in by meekness. That's why at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember those verses, he says, the meek will inherit the earth. It's the ones who are poor in spirit to whom the kingdom comes. And I love in in this chapter, Matthew 26, we get this scene, right, where look at verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant on the, of the high priest and smote off his ear. We know from other chapters that this servant of Jesus was actually Peter. And then it says in verse 52, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into it, his place. But you notice what Jesus does here? This mob comes to him, this mob uh, with, as it says, swords and staves and and, uh, all types of anger that's building up in them is coming at Jesus, wishing to bring him to certain death. And yet, one of his disciples, Peter, thinks that he's going to defend Jesus. He's going to be the one that saves Jesus' life. And he's going he's gonna to stab this guy, and he's going he's gonna to kill him, and then he misses him by a long shot and just cuts off his ear. He misses his head, cuts off his ear, and then, and I think, it's, I think it might be Mark or Luke records the fact that Jesus puts the guy's ear back on after this, this servant does this. And then notice again, 52, Jesus doesn't reprimand the mob that's trying to attack him. He actually disciplines his disciples. Look what he says. He says, put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. He's talking about the fact that that the scriptures must be fulfilled, that he has to die and resurrect again. So therefore he can conquer the last enemy, as it says in 1 Corinthians 55, which is death. He's talking about that very thing, that the fact that he is the true and better temple that has to be uh, demolished and in three days will be built up again. He's talking about that very thing, that he's going to fulfill all of these scriptures, not by taking life, but by laying down his life. By proving the fact that meekness isn't a doormat, it's courage on display. It's actually, it's actually a lot more even than that, because I like how he says in verse 53, he basically is saying, do you not think that I can call a, a kajillion angels to come to my defense? It's almost uh, going back to Daniel 3, right? My God is able to do this. But that's not how this is going to be fulfilled. That's not how the gospel is established. That's not how the gospel works. It doesn't work through violence and all these types of things. It's not that we are crusaders. 
Jesus says, don't try and take matters into your own hands. He's basically saying, let me take care of this. I got this. <laughs> and that's in this same chapter. You can stay here. That's where we get to, I think, the third lesson really quick. We had meekness pictured and meekness portrayed. And then thirdly, meekness personified. Because look at verse 63. He's now uh, at the tribunal. And look what it says. He's being accused. He's being, having false witnesses come against him, saying all kinds of false things and negative things about his life. And look what it says. But Jesus held his peace. He doesn't say anything. All throughout all these phony trials, all throughout all these things that were just rigged in a way to get Jesus to the point where he would be crucified, all of these things are pointing to, and try to get Jesus to defend himself. And yet Jesus holds his peace. He remains silent. He remains quiet. He doesn't open his mouth to defend himself because he knows that mankind's deliverance comes through his silence. It comes through him taking on all of those taunts. It takes on all of those animosities. And with Jesus, I think we can see that he was meekness in bodily form. He was meekness personified. And he's not saying rem to be doormats. He's not saying get walked on. He's saying remember where your true strength lies. It's not in you. It's not in your words. It's in me. The one who has the keys to death and hell itself. And this is why I think meekness is the posture of the Christian. Because it, it's the posture of those who know where their ultimate victory lies. And the fact that Jesus won. Well, I'll never forget this. One of my uh, collegiate professors, he was going through the New Testament. And he said, do you want me to sum up the Bible in two words? Because he, I can do it. And I said, and we all said yes. And he says, Jesus wins. That's your Bible in two words. Jesus wins. Every single step of the way. He is the victor. He is the true and better victor. I'll just read a verse quickly from 1 Peter 2.23. Which kind of harkens back to this verse in Matthew 26. Where it says... Or I'll, um, I'll start in verse 21 of Math, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, which says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was no guile found in his mouth. He was accused of sinning. He was accused of preaching all these types of heresies. And yet here we know that he did no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. And then verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. This is our great savior, the one who is meekness itself here on earth. All is meekness with Jesus. That's because he is the one, he is our substitute, he, who takes residence with us, who dwells with us. He dines with sinners and he touches unclean people. And in fact, as we, we can read, turn to Isaiah 53, we read that he stands in the place of those same sinners. Isaiah 53, verse 7. This is sort of the thing that needed, the prophet, the promise that needed to be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed, 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was silent. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. This is our Jesus, the meek Savior, who makes his grave with the wicked, who stands in the sinner's place and takes all of those revilings, all of those beatings on himself and never opens his mouth. He's silent. He's the meek one who shouldered the cross for us. And he doesn't win our salvation by force or some by uh, impassioned speech like Mr. Washington. You know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Have you ever seen that movie where he makes that impassioned speech when he's trying to hold down the Senate or whatever? Maybe I'm just going over your heads with that movie reference, but that's okay. <laughs> he doesn't, basically what I'm saying, he doesn't try and convince people that he was right. He takes that all on himself. He takes and wins our righteousness, not by force, but by deferential obedience, as we read elsewhere in Philippians 2, that led him all the way to the cross. And this is the good news that we have. It's the good news of the gospel that we can't really lose. Because if Jesus won, and our faith is in the one who has already won, we can never really lose. We can never really lose because the Christ who gave his all has already given everything for you. So how can you lose when Jesus who won everything has given everything to you? You can't really lose. No matter if you lose a job or you lose a loved one or you lose a kid or you lose a spouse, no matter what you lose, you can't really lose because Jesus has already won everything for you in the end. And that's why this silence of our savior, it kind of rails against our ideas that we, we can't lose and that we have to always win, that we have to overcome, that we have to be strong. And it frees us. This good news of the silence of the savior frees us, as C.H. Spurgeon says, to be glad losers for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, I love that old man of the faith. He says, oh, that we may never hesitate to be glad losers for Jesus. They who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ and receive all with Christ. So I can gladly say to you that we are all glad losers for Jesus. That's not me saying that, that's Spurgeon, and he's pretty true. But I think that's what we are characterized by. People of the gospel are characterized by this quiet submissiveness to God's plan. Meek people don't seek out revenge. They don't try and grip their reputation so tightly that they have to give an answer back when someone uh, uh, um, reviles them. They don't have to um, try and retaliate when someone uh, takes out violence upon them. It can absorb criticisms without retaliation. Meekness liberates you to leave your reputation and your vindication with God because he has won it all, even when your plans don't work out. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have had plans that haven't worked out? And that's because God has a better plan. 
and knowing that God has better plans in mind is all what I think meekness is about. Meek people are slow to speak and quick to listen because they understand that God will speak for them. They understand that that their own limits and aren't concerned with how they're viewed by the world because they know that their reputation out there in the world doesn't really matter because all that matters is how they're viewed by God. And you know what? God sees you in Christ. Colossians 3.3, that we are in the shadow of Christ. Really quickly, if you'll permit me, I want to read a quick passage. This comes from A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. And he has this extended paragraph where he's talking about the meek man. And I think it kind of sums up what we're talking about really well. Tozer writes, The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than the angels themselves. In himself, he is nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. The meek man knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values in him. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. This is what the gospel does. It frees you, just as he says, to not care about your estimate in the world because you know that your true standing is with God. And therefore, we can boldly declare that meekness isn't weakness. It's actually understanding where your true strength lies, where your ultimate victory is. And it's not in your words, it's not in your reputation, it's not in your ability, it's in Jesus's. It's peaceful freedom from the world by putting your faith in the one who has everything under control. It's putting your faith in the one who has won already. So all that's left for us to do is to rejoice and revel in his victory. Let us pray.